Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. And right now, the number of deaths in the United States from coronavirus continues to climb. It is now up to 68,326. At this time a month ago, the death toll was 8,162. And we have some breaking news just in. Two new projections indicate a sharp increase in coronavirus cases and deaths. The leading model from the University of Washington, frequently cited by the White House, has revised its projected death toll from 72,000 deaths in the U.S. by August to nearly double that, 135,000 deaths. President Trump is also now openly estimating that the U.S. could see up to 100,000 people die from coronavirus. That would be more than all of the American lives lost in the Vietnam and Korean wars combined. Plus, a separate internal document obtained by the New York Times reveals that the Trump administration is expecting an acceleration in how many people are infected and killed from this virus, predicting up to 3,000 people in the U.S. dying every day by June in a new document from the Centers for Disease Control. And yet, as CNN's Caitlin Collins reports for us now, President Trump says some states are still not reopening fast enough. As states ease restrictions and start to reopen, the administration now privately estimates that the number of daily deaths from coronavirus could sharply increase over the next month. The New York Times obtained an internal document that projects the daily death rate would continue to increase to as many as 3,000 per day by early June. The same document also estimates the number of new cases could jump from 25,000 a day to 200,000 by then. The White House didn't deny the document's authenticity, but said it didn't come from the West Wing and the data is not reflective of any modeling done by the task force. The task force hasn't met in person since Friday. In Washington, D.C. President Trump acknowledged in a town hall on Fox News Sunday night that the virus could be much deadlier than he previously imagined. We're going to lose anywhere from 75, 80 to 100,000 people. That's a horrible thing. We shouldn't lose one person over this. That's twice as high as a few weeks ago when the president said the death toll could be as low as 50,000. The data suggests that nationwide we have passed the peak on new cases. Hopefully that will continue and we will continue to make great progress. Even as he acknowledged that the death toll could now be much higher, Trump said he favored easing restrictions and pushed ahead with his desire to reopen the country. At some point we have to open our country. Trump is also disputing what he knew and when and says he wasn't briefed in person on the coronavirus until late January. On January 23rd, I was told that there could be a virus coming in, but it was of no 
real import. In other words, it wasn't, oh, we got to do something, we got to do something. The Washington Post reported last month that there were repeated warnings about the virus in the president's daily briefing document, which the Office of the Director of National Intelligence denied. Sunday night's town hall was held at the Lincoln Memorial. And at one point, Trump asserted he's been treated worse by the media than President Lincoln was. I am greeted with a hostile press, the likes of which no president has ever seen. Uh, the closest would be that gentleman right up there. Now, Jake, a White House spokesman said earlier that those new projections had not been vetted through the interagency process, and they noted that the president's phase guidelines about reopening the country had been endorsed and agreed to by the nation's top health experts, basically indicating that right now they do not plan to change their approach just because of these new numbers about that death toll being revised up, possibly as soon as by the end of the month. Caitlin Collins at the White House, thanks so much. In the coronavirus epicenter, New York State, Governor Andrew Cuomo urged caution today that while the number of cases and deaths is declining in his state, those declines are not nearly as fast as he had hoped, and there is still a long way to go before New York will begin to reopen. California, on the other hand, is starting to relax some restrictions. Moments ago, the governor there, Gavin Newsom, announced retail stores can start to reopen Friday on a limited basis CNN's Nick Watt is in Santa Monica, California for us right now. Nick, uh, how would this plan of Governor Newsom's, how would it work? Well, he is going to lay that out for us on Thursday, he says. I mean, Jake, this is big breaking news. This is from the state that was one of the earliest and most enthusiastic adopters of this stay-home policy. And now Governor Newsom says that 55 zero days after he announced that policy, we will start relaxing some of those restrictions. So retail will be a lot of curbside pickup. He says there, there will be severe modifications in all of this. But 50 days after he said we've got to stay home, he's now saying we can begin to come out. Today, restaurants can reopen in Nebraska, bars in Montana, offices in Colorado. Yes, some social distancing restrictions remain, but by the end of this week, more than 40 states will be partially back open for business. While we've been staying indoors, we have been slowing down the spread. But what we haven't done is gotten rid of the virus. Parks packed some places over the weekend. Authorities had to act. In D.C., crowds gathered for a flyby Saturday. This virus has not left the district. Um, in fact, where, where we thought we would be in having peak experiences during the month of May. And there's a warning as the weather gets warmer. People get together, have big events, and then we really pay the price for May and June. In 15 of our states, the daily new case count is falling, among them those northeast hotspots. You see the decline is, uh, again, not as steep as the incline. But uh, reopening is more difficult than the close down. But in 20 states, the daily new case count is still rising, among them Wisconsin, Minnesota. Illinois, New York City now making its own tests. They say 30,000 will be available by Friday. This is a first in our city's history. In Los Angeles, free testing now for all, but heavy traffic reportedly causing some problems on the sign-up site. The governor of California will now allow some retail to open Friday with significant modifications. He says certain areas of lower concern can move even faster. We will afford them that uh, right 
uh, with conditions and modifications that meet the health needs of the entire state. Meanwhile, the White House is now focusing on 14 potential vaccines. We are very confident that we're going to have a vaccine at the end of the year. Miracles can happen. It could come together, um, but I'm certainly not banking on it. The makers of that potential therapeutic remdesivir say they've now donated 140,000 courses to the federal government. They will determine, uh, based upon things like ICU beds, uh, the, where the course of the epidemic is in the United States, they will begin shipping tens of thousands of treatment courses out early this week. Now, listen to this, our weird normal. Today in D.C. Oh, yay. Oh, yay. Oh, yay. All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States, are admonished to give their attention. That's the Supreme Court for the first time in history, meeting by teleconference. Now, Jake, you mentioned that model from the University of Washington has just nearly doubled its projected death count in the U.S. to 135,000 by August. Now, one of the professors involved was asked why. He said, well, certain outbreaks in the Midwest have caused concern, but also, and this is key, he says, that before social distancing restrictions were relaxed, there was increased mobility. And he says that some of those restrictions have been lifted prematurely, and that is why they are upping their estimate of the eventual death count. Jake. All right, Nick Watt in Santa Monica, thank you so much. Coming up, a division of the National Institutes of Health is now looking at coronavirus and our kids. A former CDC disease detective will join me on why children are apparently less likely to be infected. Plus, want to leave the house? In one country, you'll have to text the government a reason why. We're going to go live on the ground with a look at one nation's success story so far. Stay with us. The agency led by Dr. Anthony Fauci is now looking into how children are affected by coronavirus. Today, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases announced that officials will study 2,000 families in 11 cities to determine who gets infected with the virus and whether it spreads to other family members. Joining us now to discuss, Dr. Seema Yasmin, a former CDC disease detective. Dr. Yasmin, thanks for joining us as always. So the CDC did a preliminary study of this last month. They found that very few children with coronavirus end up hospitalized and that fewer children than adults experience even symptoms like fever, cough, shortness of breath. What might this new study be able to tell us? So we're really trying to figure out some of these unanswered questions and quite perplexing issues among children, Jake. It's not that kids aren't getting sick. I want to be very clear that we have seen children get severely sick with COVID-19 and some even tragically die. But by and large, this is much more an illness of adults and older adults. So what this new study hopes to do is it's sending nasal swabs and blood test kits, just pinprick blood test kits, to 2,000 families across 11 cities, hoping to recruit 6,000 children. And they're asking caregivers to take nasal swabs and blood tests from these kids every two weeks, send those results back to the lab, and they're going to follow these kids for six months in the hopes of understanding what proportion of kids who get infected actually become sick with COVID-19, and if children are infected, are they silent carriers in the household? Are they going on to infect family members? Because right now we don't know, are kids somehow resistant to the coronavirus, or is it that they get infected, but then they don't become very 
thick with it. And certainly the data from these studies are sorely needed and will help us make better, more informed decisions about things like reopening health, uh, school, schools and children's care facilities as, as well. The study is going to include healthy children and children who have asthma or other allergic conditions to help clarify early research that suggests that kids with such conditions might have a level of protection from COVID-19. What is the possible correlation between asthma and coronavirus? So you would expect that with a respiratory bug, it's going to be kids with asthma and kids with allergies who are more likely to become very sick and more likely to become infected in the, in the first place. There seems to be a strange paradox with COVID-19, though, that if you have kids with asthma and allergies, they seem to have a lower chance of becoming infected in the first place and of developing a severe disease. Now, this is strange and it's unexpected, but we think it's to do with a receptor on our cells called ACE2. This is a receptor that the sars coronavirus likes to latch onto. And when you look at the airways of people with asthma and allergies, they seem to have less of this receptor in their cells. But still, we're not clear as to what this means moving forward. And that's why this study is sorely needed to help us better understand whether kids with asthma and allergies are really less likely to become sick. FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, announced that the White House is going to oversee distribution of this experimental drug remdesivir, uh, which is expected to treat somewhere between 100 and 200,000 patients. How does the U.S. government normally decide who gets the drug, who's able to get it? Does the White House usually make those decisions? So with a finite number of doses and in a crisis situation, you want to make sure the allocation is absolutely designed by need. Where are there most cases of COVID-19 and where are there most patients in ICU beds? Because with this new drug, remdesivir, that's not been approved, but it has been given FDA authorization under emergency use, this is being used in the sickest COVID-19 patients. Now, as you mentioned, Gilead has made 1.4 million doses available for free. But if you read the FDA's guidance, it says that it's going to be the federal government that decides where this goes. The thing that's concerning about this, though, is that in the past few weeks and months, we've seen federal authorities seize PPE on its way to states. We haven't always seen decisions that are based on science, more so with which governors have friends in high places. So it's absolutely crucial that when we only have enough drug for about 150,000 people, it goes to those hot spots in the US where most people are on ventilators, most people are severely sick, and where we're likely to see more deaths. Dr. Deborah Burks of the White House Coronavirus Task Force says that remdesivir is the first step forward, uh, but she also acknowledges that they've only seen half the data. Do you have concerns with the drug going wide during this emergency time? So this is a failed Ebola drug that was then tested in COVID-19 patients. And what we've seen that does offer a glimmer of hope is it looks like remdesivir shortens the recovery time. So on average, it might take somebody very sick with COVID-19 about 15 days to recover. But you give them remdesivir, that drops by four days to about an 11-day recovery time. Now, certainly that 
is some hope amidst so much crisis and these escalating death rates here in the States. But I want to reiterate that this is not an FDA-approved drug. It's an FDA-authorized drug for an emergency situation. And what that means, Jake, is as we start giving more and more people remdesivir, we're keeping a really close eye on them. We're not assuming that this works on everybody. We're still gathering data and evidence to see, does it work? Who does it help most? And using that to guide where the drug should be sent. And Dr. Jasmine, lastly, the FDA says that there are 72 active trials underway and another 211 in the planning stages for treatments, not a vaccine. What makes remdesivir theoretically uh, the one that so many people are most optimistic about? So I think what's most promising about it is the fact that it does reduce that recovery time. And when we're giving it intravenously in hospitalized patients who are the most sick, it does seem to boost their recovery. It does not show any data around being statistically significant in lowering the death rate. But certainly it's the drug that's gone furthest in terms of testing in humans. And that, coupled with the fact that it seems to shrink recovery time, is what's most promising. But again, we're giving this to people in an emergency situation. It's an authorized drug, not an approved one. And we are still gathering evidence on remdesivir and some other potential treatments to find out what really works against COVID-19. All right, Dr. Sima Yasmin, always great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for your time. Coming up, our Dr. Sanjay Gupta is going to join me to discuss the dramatic increase in expected coronavirus deaths, nearly 135,000 now projected for August. Why? Stay with us. Two new models project explosive growth in the number of both cases and deaths from coronavirus in the United States. According to one estimate, up to 3,000 people could die per day next month. That's from the CDC. Joining me now is CNN Chief Medical Correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Um, so Sanjay, this new Trump administration document from the Centers for Disease Control projects a possible 3,000 deaths and 200,000 new cases a day. Then there's the updated model from the University of Washington, which predicts a doubling in projected deaths by August from 70,000 or so to 134,000. I mean, this is obviously horrible news. We hope the projections are wrong. But what's your big picture reaction to it? Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you. I, I, it's, it's horrible news. Uh, Jake, you know, someone who's been following this along looked at the initial projections, you know, going back to, to January. Um, sadly, this doesn't surprise me. I mean, I think this is much more in line with what some of the original models were forecasting, Jake. I mean, again, it's horrible news. But when we started to see some of these models coming out of the IHME models, you know, at the University of Washington, I remember even you and I talking about it at that point, and I was sort of struck by the fact that the numbers seemed a lot lower than the other data and other models, frankly, would suggest. And I was also struck by the fact that the White House really uh, sort of pivoted to that model in part, I think, you know, uh, because it did look more favorable uh, than a lot of the other models coming out at that point. What we were dealing with, uh, you know, and we knew this since January, it's a very contagious virus. Uh, we knew that uh, uh, we still don't know the true lethality rate, the, you know, the percentage of people that will die once infected, but we knew it was, it was higher than flu. Flu's around 0.1%. Initially, we thought maybe uh, looking at some of the early data out of China, this was closer to 1% to 2%, so 10 to 20 times higher. It was, it was hard to know. We also knew that, you know, flattening the curve would have an impact but we didn't know how much of an impact. I think two things jump out now. Mm -hmm. One is that we, we kind of have some idea of, 
of the fact that the, the, the physical distancing measures have had an impact, but it's reduced this level of infection in this country to a slow burn as opposed to moving us to the backside of the curve. We hope this would take us to the backside of the curve. It really doesn't look that way, Jake. I mean, still 1,700 people roughly are dying every day. And as you mentioned, now within the month, they think that number will go to 3,000 people a day, in part because the models continuously adjust. And in large part, Jake, as you know, and as we've talked about for a long time, because people are starting to reopen. And that's going to lead to a, a increase in infections, increase in hospitalizations, and sadly, an increase in deaths. I, you know, 135,000 is what this IHME model is forecasting. Jake, I hate to say this, but even that might be a little low. If you're talking about 3,000 people dying a day for one month, that would be 90,000 people. 70,000 roughly have already, you know, died in this country. Just do the math. That's 160,000 people right there. And that's after one month, Jake. Right. So, you know, we, we need to, to take this seriously, as, as we've been saying, and really focus on some of these, these strategies that seem to have had some impact as we try and outpace this virus. It's the worst health thing that has happened to human civilization in a hundred years. And I hate saying that, but it's the truth. Well, and, and, you know, it, it needs to be said. Right. And, and Sanjay, Chris Murray, who developed the University of Washington IHME model, uh, said there's a longer tail of deaths and that his team is now using a hybrid approach, gathering mobility data and data to, quote, reflect the effect right. of premature relaxation of social distance. And th this is what uh, I, you and I have expressed frustration about now for for weeks, which is they are governors are relaxing uh, these these guidelines and the economic pain is very real and nobody makes light of it. Yeah. But without widespread testing so that while we reopen our economy, we're able to know who has the virus, who doesn't, and isolate people who have it, we're just going to extend this economic pain. Not to mention, of course, the health pain. And it's, it's, it's like Mayor Vaughn from Jaws, uh, excited for a, a wonderful summer with lots of economy. You can't do that if there's a great white shark in the ocean. That, I, I agree completely. And, you know, we, we have to outpace this this virus. And, you know, we, we've known for some time that a vaccine would be obviously a significant way to to reduce, uh, you know, to, to, to stop the spread. Obviously, we know an effective therapeutic. Maybe we'll have one of those will we'll make a, a significant impact. And we have to have significant testing uh, so that we can at least start to isolate the people who are infected. It may not make a huge difference in terms of these numbers that we're talking about. But it's, you know, for now, it's the best that we can do. Uh, obviously, in addition to maintaining the physical distancing, wearing masks, washing hands and things like that. I mean, again, I, I wish I could say something that was more, uh, you know, I'm optimistic that we're going to get through this, Jake. It's just it is going to be a longer road than people realize. And I think when we start to reopen like this, it clearly is a risk reward calculation. And what we're seeing and, you know, the data doesn't lie here. You know, we have to pay attention to this, that the number of people who will die will be in the thousands per day. Uh, Jake, it's already in the thousands per day. It's close to 2000 per day, but that will go up significantly. What is the price that we're willing to pay? That, that, this is a fundamental, almost existential question that we're now starting to ask in communities all across the country. We have to ask it. We have to be honest about it. And I think it's your job, my job, to be honest about what we can say from the medical standpoint, you know, as far as all the decisions that get based on that is going to be something that people are grappling with right now. And let's uh, quickly turn, if we can, to the race for a vaccine. President Trump 
uh, said he thinks there'll be one by the end of the year. We, of course, hope he's right. An Oxford professor said the prospects of a vaccine are, quote, pretty good uh, with early results coming uh, this summer. Um, Dr. Deborah Burke said a, a January time frame was was realistic on paper. What do you think? What, what do you make of all this? I think the idea that maybe there would be something available for, you know, sort of emergency use uh, early for healthcare workers, for example, people on the front lines, uh, that would be a gamble as well because you'd, you'd want it to go through all these various phases of trial. But let's say you get through phase two trial, which could be sometime by the end of the year, and you say now uh, we're going to go ahead and start letting people use this even though we're not all the way through phase three trials or the frontline workers are, in essence are part of the phase three trial. Think of it like that. I think, you know, it's possible. The types of vaccines that we're talking about, at least two of them, the mRNA vaccine and then this, this modified chimpanzee vaccine, chimpanzee virus vaccine from Oxford, they really haven't been done before. If they work, it could be great. And the mRNA vaccine could actually be easier to manufacture than some of these other, uh, the more conventional vaccines. So if it works, <clears throat> we could get to that point. <coughs> Excuse me. But we're not, you know, we're not there yet, uh, Jake. And, you know, I think we, I think by the end of this month, by the end of May, early June, we're going to have a much better idea if one of those vaccines is going to work. All right, Sanjay, thank you so much. As always, appreciate it. Be sure yeah. to listen to Sanjay's daily podcast, Coronavirus. Fast, fact versus fiction. It's on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. For weeks, the state of Florida refused to discuss the death toll inside its nursing homes. Now the state is finally reporting numbers, but the math might not add up. We'll explain next. President Trump continues to praise Florida Republican Governor Ron DeSantis for that state's relatively low coronavirus numbers, given its population, nearly 37,000 cases, 1,400 deaths. But questions are rising over how the state is exactly reporting the death rate. After refusing for weeks to discuss the toll on nursing homes in the state, Florida health administrators have finally released detailed data. But as CNN's Randy Kay now reports, even those numbers show inconsistencies about what nursing homes are actually describing. As some of Florida's beaches and businesses start to reopen today, the state is also opening up the records of coronavirus cases and deaths in nursing homes and assisted living facilities. The list from Florida's health department details more than 300 facilities where staff or residents tested positive for the coronavirus, including those who have died. But the numbers don't always add up. Take the Atria Willowwood Assisted Living Facility in Fort Lauderdale. Officials there tell CNN seven residents have died from the coronavirus. But the chart released by the state May 1st tells a different story, just three resident deaths, noting that three others are, quote, under investigation. And there's more. The state's data also indicates a staff member died. The facility told me a staff member did test positive for the virus, but recovered and even returned to work. Still, that's hardly the only discrepancy. At five-star premier residences in Hollywood, the state's chart shows one resident and two staff members died. But Five Star told me by phone that its three confirmed deaths from the coronavirus were all residents. Five Star says they did not lose any staff, as the state's most current list suggests. It was devastating. You know, I, I couldn't understand how something could uh, escalate so quickly in a matter of days. George Zamanillo's mother died from coronavirus at the residential plaza at Blue Lagoon in Miami. The state's chart shows three deaths at that facility. But George shared these letters from the facility to families. One, dated April 20th, reports the death of three residents. 
Another from April 27th reports the death of another resident, bringing the total to four. Yet the state health department's chart, which is supposed to be updated weekly, still shows three deaths at that facility. Our calls to Residential Plaza were not returned. Neither were emails or calls to the governor's office and the state health department. George says families deserve the real numbers. And when state provides a list that we know is incomplete or doesn't match up with the total counts that have been released locally, we know something is wrong. We know for a fact that it's not jiving. You know, the numbers are definitely off. And, uh, and it's very disturbing. We're not sure what it, what is being covered up. Perhaps it's just fuzzy math. Whatever the reason, the numbers just don't sync up. At the court at Palm Air in Pompano Beach, the state's chart shows seven deaths, including six residents and one staff member. The facility tells us there have been seven deaths, but they were all residents. And Jake, if you look at the numbers, 155,000 residents in nursing homes and long-term care facilities here in the state of Florida, certainly hard to keep track of, but that is what the state's Department of Health is supposed to do. So families can take comfort in knowing that they have all the information. So these discrepancies that we found certainly are not comforting for the families, Jake, and nobody wants to talk about them, despite my numerous calls to the governor's office and the state health department, still no response. And a discrepancy of one, two, or three, when you project that out to all of the nursing homes in Florida, that's potentially a very big number. Randy Kay, thank you so much. Appreciate your reporting. Escalating tensions, as Secretary of State Mike Pompeo says, there's enormous evidence that coronavirus was manufactured in a Chinese lab. We're going to go live to Shanghai with the response of the Chinese government. That's next. In our world lead today, a major increase in tensions between the United States and China. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo claiming there is considerable evidence that coronavirus originated in a Chinese lab and that the communist nation intentionally hid critical information about the virus early on while stockpiling medical supplies. In response, Chinese state media called Pompeo, quote, evil and accused him of spreading lies. CNN's David Culver has been covering the coronavirus in China from the beginning and joins us now from Shanghai. And, and, and David, Look, I get that the Chinese government doesn't like being challenged about its failures and its duplicity, but did Pompeo say anything factually incorrect? Well, Jake, he he has a range of accusations against the Chinese government. I want to play a little bit more as to what he is claiming, and then I'll tackle some of that on the back end. The Chinese Communist Party did all that it could to make sure that the world didn't learn in a timely fashion uh, about what was taking place. We've said from the beginning that this was uh, a virus that originated in Wuhan, China. We took a lot of grief for that uh, from the outset, but I think the whole world can see now. Remember, China has a history of infecting the world, and they have a history of running substandard laboratories. Three accusations, as I see them coming out from the U.S., from Pompeo in particular. The first is that it started in a lab. Well, the Chinese say to that, show us the proof. They consider this to be a bluff. And they say, look, even some U.S. intelligence suggests this was not man-made. Now, where the Chinese argument may fall short is now other countries are likewise questioning the origin, including Australia and some European nations. The other part of the argument is that this was concealed for many weeks early on. Our own reporting, Jake, showed that. We, we heard about the whistleblowers, and we even talked to one of them who was silenced and later lost his life. We know that there was censorship on Chinese social media. And the third big argument here from Pompeo is that during that concealing of, of information and, and withholding as to how severe this was, 
that they were stockpiling supplies here. I will say I think that argument might fall short, given that early on, we also discovered the dire need and shortage of PPE, the masks, the gowns, the really hazmat-like suits, and medical personnel were actually going into the front line, so to speak, and losing their lives. So that last argument of stockpiling doesn't hold much weight for at least early on in this. However, now there's certainly a plethora of PPE available here. And David, the, the Chinese government's propaganda machine has been in full drive uh, and falsely depicting this narrative where the Chinese government did everything right and the United States did everything wrong. And look, there were certainly mistakes made by the U.S. We covered them in the documentary last night that's going to re-air again tonight. But how successful has this narrative been in China? Are the Chinese people believing it? It's always difficult to assess how widely believed it is because of the censorship that we see here. I will say this, anecdotally, we're seeing a rise in nationalism, and it may look like a war of words right now, Jake, but words can fuel emotion, which can spark action. That's why many are saying this has echoes of a, of a U.S. Uh, Cold War type era. All right, David Culver in, in Shanghai, stay safe. In Europe, Greece managed to keep its deaths related to coronavirus below 150, according to their official count. That's with a population around 10 million, which is about the same as the state of Georgia in the United States. And that state has so far had almost twice as many deaths as the entire country of Greece. In Athens, Greece, one of the biggest cities in that country, not a single doctor or nurse has been infected at one of its hospitals. So CNN's Nick Robertson explains how the government of Greece and the Greek people did this as that country looks to ease its seven-week lockdown. Welcome to Greece. The new normal at Athens International Airport. Wow. Thank you. Thorough COVID-19 testing. We're negative. Everyone off our flight is getting it. It's tough love, but Greece is defying expectations. Despite an aging population and creaking healthcare, it is holding off COVID-19. And it's no easier if you live here until this weekend just to leave home. You had to register with the government, text the number one through six, go to the pharmacy, buying groceries, exercise, all part of a hard, fast lockdown. Greece's new post-populist but pragmatic prime minister says is working. So we feel we have reached that point where we have almost completely suppressed the, um, uh, the epidemic, uh, at least its first stage, and we, can, we, can, we will gradually begin to relax. Do you feel like you've dodged the bullet? Uh, we feel we've dodged the first bullet, uh, very clearly. Putting on, yeah, masker, how masker, putting on this protective gear, because we're going to go into the ICU. So how are these patients doing? Dr. Anastasia Kotanidou leads the way. Better now. Better, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Life for some still in the balance. But I see you here at one-fifth capacity. Thanks, she says, to the early lockdown. And this helped you in the hospitals? Yeah. 150 deaths, around 2,600 confirmed infections. Less than New York some days. And not a single doctor or nurse in this Athens main COVID-19 hospital infected. don't have uh, any infection from uh, health staff or no. doctor, no. That's incredible. No. Yeah. We start very early with uh, protective uh, equipment. This seems to be, dare I say, a very strong message for 
the United States and the United Kingdom, whose track records at the moment on this pandemic are, are, are probably some of the worst in terms of death and infection rates. I think we've done it the right way. Uh, uh, of course, we didn't get everything completely right, but if you look at the, the numbers, you, you can't uh, argue with what we, uh, what we have achieved. Next test for the Prime Minister here is bringing back the economy. 20% of it comes from tourism. They hope to bring tourists in by the beginning of July. A double-edged sword, a big concern for the Prime Minister. But a key, he said, to getting that up and running. Remember the coronavirus test we had at the airport there? He said there needs to be a new international standard. That needs to be done at the country of origin. So everyone's tested before they arrive. Every country getting back to normal is dependent on others here, Jake. All right, Nick Robertson, thank you so much. Uh, coming up, a look at the small business loan program and one provision that might explain why more have not applied. That's next. In our money lead today, a provision in the loan program for small businesses may explain why more have not applied since round two started last week. About half the money's gone, $175 billion out of $310 billion available. To get loans forgiven, companies must spend most of their money on payrolls and do so within eight weeks. I want to bring in CNN business anchor Julia Chatterley. Julia, uh, lenders thought that the second round money could go as fast as two days. We're now on day seven. Is this loan not attractive anymore for companies trying to stay afloat? Let's call it a rethink. I've had plenty of small companies come to me and say, why should I pay my workers for eight weeks to do nothing when actually they're saying to me they're better off on benefits and they're afraid? Plus, we don't know what happens next. The other thing is a lot of big companies are staying away because of the excess scrutiny. We're seeing that in the numbers. The loan size is way, way smaller. Smaller loan size, the money lasts longer. And that, I think, is the key here. Stats from the Center for Responsible Lending show that minority businesses mm. are getting shut out of the loan process. More than 90 percent of black, Latino and Native American business owners and 75 percent of Asian American businesses likely not getting access to the money. Why? What's going on? Yeah, they're awful statistics. The fact is, if you're a minority-run business, it's harder to get money in the United States. The Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta has done a lot of work on this. In a recent report, they concluded for black-owned businesses specifically, they're 20% less likely than a similar white-owned business to get money from a big bank. But there's other factors. They're more likely to go to an online lender who were excluded, if you remember, the first time around. They also have less confidence. They don't think they'll get the loan, so they don't apply. Net-net, bank relationships were critical, Jake, and these minorities didn't have them, and they got penalized. All right, Julia Chatterley, CNN business anchor, uh, thank you so much. Finally today, we remember Stanley Hennison, a member of the New York Police Department who lost his battle with coronavirus over the weekend. The police commissioner says Agent Hennison dutifully served the people of New York for more than six years. Most recently, he was a traffic enforcement agent in Brooklyn. 38 members of the NYPD have now lost their lives to coronavirus. More than 700 are currently out sick after testing positive. Our thoughts and prayers today are with Agent Hennison's family and friends. May his memory be a blessing. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. Thanks for watching. Stay healthy. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep Next Level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. 
Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.